Hello, I'm Nadia Singh and welcome to IDSA's podcast, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? The purpose of this podcast is to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this rapidly evolving outbreak. These podcasts will be produced weekly or as often as necessary. Our aim is to bring in experts like yourselves from various focus areas within the field of infectious diseases. Today, I'm joined by members of IDSA's coronavirus expert panel, Dr. Susan Klein of the University of Minnesota, Dr. Julie Weishampayan, a Stanislaus County, California public health official, and Dr. Kritika Kapali of Stanford University. All are experts on infectious disease outbreaks at their institutions. Thank you all for being here. I'm going to start with Dr. Weishampayan. Doctor, can you give us the current data internationally and domestically on the COVID-19 outbreak? Sure. So as of this morning, there have been over 75,700 reported cases and over 2,100 deaths. Um, The vast majority, over 74,500, have been reported from mainland China. This count includes laboratory confirmed cases and clinically confirmed, um, which means that some of them have uh, pneumonia on CT scan only and not lab confirmed. These clinically confirmed syndromic cases were included in the case count starting last week. There are reports this morning that China is again changing the way cases are counted. So these changes make it difficult to interpret the trend in new cases to determine if the control measures are working and the situation is improving in China. Just over 1,100 cases have been reported outside China from 29 different countries. There has been transmission confirmed in 14 of these countries, with most of the transmission occurring in very close contacts. In the United States, there are still 15 confirmed cases. 13 had returned from travel to China, and two are close household contacts of confirmed cases. An additional 14 people from the Diamond Princess who tested positive for this virus in Japan have been evacuated to the United States. Dr. Weishampayan, staying with you, now that the U.S. passengers from the Diamond Princess cruise ship you just mentioned are back in the States, what does the public need to know about containment? So to to recap a little bit about what's been going on the Diamond Princess, on February 1, a passenger who had left the Diamond Princess on the 25th of January tested positive for the virus that causes COVID-19. And by February 14, 218 people had tested positive. Since then, the number has increased by around 70 to 100 new cases each day, indicating that there may have been continued transmission on the ship. So as of today, February 20, there have been 634 people on the Diamond Princess that have tested positive. There were in total a little over 3,700 guests and crew on board. So this means that about 17% or one out of every six people on this ship have tested positive. This is the largest cluster outside of the epicenter in China and accounts for more than half of all cases reported outside of mainland China. The Japanese health ministry confirmed this morning that two of these ill passengers have died from this disease. So earlier this week, the United States evacuated U.S. citizens who wanted to return. Over 300 people arrived early the morning of February 17. Due to the continued risk of ongoing exposure on the ship, Returning passengers are in quarantine at two military bases, one in California and one in Texas. More people will most likely test positive in the coming days. So to mitigate the risk to the public from these returning travelers, they will all stay in quarantine until the incubation period has passed. Based on what is known about the virus and other coronaviruses, uh, the risk to the communities temporarily housing these people is low. There are still more than 100 U.S. citizens from this cruise ship in Japan 
After disembarkation from the Diamond Princess, these passengers and crew will be required to wait 14 days without having symptoms or a positive coronavirus test result before they will be permitted to board flights to the United States. So I would like to sincerely thank all these people who are giving the next 14 days to protect their family, their friends, and their communities. Thank you, Dr. Weisham Pai. And Dr. Klein, this next question is for you. How are U.S. hospitals preparing for potential COVID-19 cases? Well, I think that U.S. hospitals are preparing for potential COVID-19 cases in a number of ways. And one of the principal ways that we are preparing is trying to remind all our healthcare workers who are working at the first point of contact with patients in healthcare facilities that they should routinely ask travel history when people present um, both to outpatient clinics and to emergency rooms and hospitals as we need to know um, if they've traveled to China in particular, if they've been in Wuhan province, and then I think because the illness is now spreading outside of China to other countries, we'd want to know where else they've traveled internationally. And then also it's important on the, the first point of contact with the healthcare facility uh, for those intake staff to ask about symptoms of respiratory illness in particular, ask about fever and cough. And so if, if you're asking about travel and fever and cough, you should be able to identify these people when they first enter a healthcare facility and then appropriately isolate them. It's important once these people who could have um, the novel 2019 coronavirus are identified that they be segregated then from common waiting areas or public areas, that they be offered a surgical mask to put on and that they then be um, escorted to a private room uh, where the door can be closed and um, then ideally you know if it's concerning that they could um, have COVID-19 COVID that they then be put into airborne isolation and that healthcare workers put on the appropriate personal protective equipment to protect themselves as well. Very good advice there, Dr. Klein. I have a couple of follow-ups to that question. What challenges are hospitals and ID doctors facing with regard to preparedness? Well, I think one of the um, challenges that we've heard about right now is that there appears to be an increased demand, um, not only within U.S. Uh, hospitals and clinics, but internationally for some of the uh, personal protective equipment that we would want our healthcare workers to wear, the N95 masks in particular. There seem to be um, some short supply of those, and so we are needing to make sure that these are being used appropriately and not inappropriately, and that we conserve them and so that they're available to use in the most um, appropriate circumstances. And how are we utilizing lessons learned from previous outbreaks? Well, I think we're, we're actually being able to use what we learned during the 2014-2016 Ebola outbreak 
um, which was primarily in West Africa, but we did have some imported cases to the US. And what we learned through that experience is really the importance of being prepared ahead of time for these unusual high consequence infectious diseases, which uh, may present at our healthcare facilities, but are not part of our, our routine care. And so we have um, really focused on training teams of healthcare providers who are um, very proficient in donning and doffing personal protective equipment. We trained our frontline staff on the importance of always asking um, a travel history and symptoms um, when people first present to again try to um, really protect other patients and healthcare workers within our healthcare facilities. Thank you, Dr. Klein. Switching gears now to isolation guidelines for coronaviruses that recommend droplet precautions. The CDC is stating that airline passengers who sat more than two rows or six feet from a person who may have COVID-19 are at low risk. Why then is the CDC recommending patients suspected of being infected with this virus be placed in airborne precautions in a negative pressure isolation room? Well, I think that um, right now there's some uncertainty about the exact routes of spread of the COVID-19 and whether it's um, primarily droplet spread, but in some circumstances could be airborne spread. I think, you know, that is the concern that, and um, I think that thinking is based on our past experience with some other uh, earlier novel coronaviruses, the SARS virus and the MERS virus, which are both coronaviruses, that there was evidence in those outbreaks that uh, spread was primarily droplet and likely some contact spread, but in certain circumstances, they could not rule out the possibility of airborne spread. And so I think, you know, out of an abundance of concern, uh, especially in a healthcare facility where they have negative pressure rooms available, it's felt that that is the ideal um, type of isolation and that healthcare workers who would be having really intense close contact with these patients, especially for high-risk procedures like intubation, bronchoscopies, nebulization, that they take the extra precautions of, of using what we call airborne isolation. Is there any evidence of airborne spread over longer distances than droplets can travel? I'm not aware with this particular um, novel coronavirus yet that we have that data, although um, it's something that we may learn during the course of this outbreak. I do think that there's evidence with other infectious diseases that that can occur. Um, infections like tuberculosis, for instance, or the smallpox virus or chickenpox virus. There's some evidence in, in certain um, situations that there appears to be airborne spread, but not all infections are spread through the airborne route. So it's, it's really somewhat unique to each um, bacteria or virus. And I think we're still learning about this um, 
new coronavirus, and we don't know yet um, what the evidence is supporting airborne spread over droplet spread. Thank you very much, Dr. Klein, for that. Uh, the World Health Organization has said it is shipping testing kits and PPE to African countries with high volumes of travel to and from China and training health workers to test, isolate, and treat people with COVID-19 while keeping themselves safe. Why is it critically important, Dr. Kapali, to ensure that countries with limited resources be strongly supported in preparing for the arrival of COVID-19? Um, yes, thanks for that question. So um, management and control of not just this particular infection, but all infections um, largely depend on a country's health capacity. Um, in fact, if you recall, uh, during Dr. Tedros's announcement declaring this outbreak a public health emergency of international concern, one of the main points that he made was the concern if uh, COVID-19 were to obtain a foothold in an area with weakened healthcare infrastructure, uh, such as uh, some of the countries in Africa. Uh, China in particular is Africa's leading commercial partner, thus there's a large travel volume through which uh, COVID-19 could reach the continent. Um, thus far, several measures have been put in place. However, the ability to limit and control transmission is um, important and depends on implementing measures such as detection, prevention, and control, and requires increased surveillance along with rapid identification of cases since onward transmission in countries with weaker healthcare systems would be a major public health emergency and would be devastating, um, as we saw with the 2014 West Africa outbreak. Um, so I think that's why it's very important. And a couple of things of note is just um, out today, uh, the WHO announced that there have been 24 countries in the African region that now have confirmed that they can test for potential COVID-19 cases, whereas only two weeks ago, there were only two referral laboratories, one in South Africa and another in Senegal. So Africa um, CDC has and WHO has been hard at work at scaling up testing capacity across the African continent, which is very important to note. Dr. Kapali, a follow-up question here. Could COVID-19 have already arrived and not been noticed? Well, I will never say never to anything, so I think anything is possible. I will say that they have been very good at um, uh, monitoring and screening for patients in um, Africa. Thus far, um, there have already been um, 210 people that have been investigated for COVID-19 in WHO African region and uh, 204 cases have been ruled out, uh, and there are six people under investigation. And um, one thing I would like to mention is, I believe at the end of last week, there was a mention of a case confirmed in Egypt uh, to be positive for COVID-19, and that patient subsequently uh, had six tests done by WHO that came back negative. So I believe that, um, there actually still to date have not been any positive cases on the African continent. Another question for you, Dr. Kapali. I understand there's some interesting new data coming from China that was recently issued in a China CDC paper. 
Can you share those findings with us? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. So this was a very um, interesting uh, report that came out from China CDC earlier this week detailing the epidemiological characteristics of um, COVID-19 in China. And it gives us the largest amount of data that we have to date. Um, so it was a review of 72,314 patient records. And of those patients, 44,672, or 61.8% were confirmed patients with COVID-19. 16,186, or 22.4%, were suspect patients. 10,567, or 14.6%, were clinical cases. And 889, or 1.2%, were asymptomatic. And some of the interesting data that came out of this information was, first of all, of the confirmed cases, so 44,672, a majority of the patients were between the ages of 30 to 69. That was 77.8%. 51.4% uh, of them were male. A majority of them, 74.7%, were diagnosed in Hubei province. Um, one of the things that was probably most notable was that 80.9% of the patients that were confirmed were diagnosed as mild cases. Mild cases being patients who had um, upper respiratory symptoms that, um, called non-pneumonia or mild pneumonia. And I think that's a really important uh, point that we should all take note of. Um, the other thing that was noted was that 12.8% uh, of confirmed cases had hypertension, 5.3% had diabetes, 4.2% had coronary artery disease, and 2.4% had chronic respiratory disease. Um, in the 44,672 patients that were confirmed, there was 1,023 deaths um, with a mortality rate thus far of 2.3%. It was noted that anyone greater than or equal to 80 years in age had the highest chance of mortality at 14.8%. Um, and um, those who had no comorbid conditions um, were less likely to die. Those who had coronary disease had a 10.5% um, mortality rate. Those with diabetes had a 7.3% mortality rate. Those with Chronic respiratory disease had a 6.3% mortality rate. Hypertension had a 6.0% mortality rate. And cancer had a 5.6% mortality rate. And uh, the other thing that was uh, noticeable in this data was that if you had critical disease, which was um, uh, having respiratory failure, septic shock, or multiple organ failure, um, you had a uh, fatality rate of 49%. Um, and then the last piece of information I want to hit on from this uh, data set was that there were 1,716 healthcare worker cases um, and five deaths. Of the healthcare worker cases, 1,080 were confirmed to be in Wuhan. So that was 64%. So um, that was probably the most interesting information from this data. Um, some of the things that the authors mentioned that we still need to find more information about um, are 
the animal reservoir for the disease, the determination of infectiousness period, transmission routes, and therapies for treatment and prevention. But overall, very interesting information coming out from China CDC earlier this week with the largest um, data set thus far uh, that has been published. Definitely a lot of thorough information there. Thank you, Dr. Kapali. At this time, doctors, I'd like to ask if there's anything further any of you would like to add. Uh, sure, thanks. Um, so I wanted to make all of our listeners aware of a article that came out earlier this week in Lancet supporting scientists, public health professionals, and medical professionals in China. Uh, along with this article is a link to a petition asking for the scientific community to voice support for those on the front lines of the outbreak. There's a link to the article and the petition on the IDSA website at www.idsociety.org. And I would really like to encourage all of our members and all of those in the scientific community to go there and read the article and sign the petition. As someone who's worked on the front lines of an outbreak, I can tell you that knowing that you have the support of the entire scientific community means a lot to you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kapali. Uh, Dr. Weishampayan, you had broached the effect on pets. Would you like to tackle that question since we have a few minutes left? Sure. We often get questions about pets, uh, whether dogs and cats can be infected by various communicable diseases. And recently, uh, I think it was late last week, the World Small Animal Veterinary Association, their scientific and one health committees, put out some guidance regarding companion companion animals and COVID-19. And they stated that while this is a rapidly evolving situation and not everything is known about this virus, there is currently no evidence that pets or other domestic animals can be infected. So they also gave some other recommendations about keeping companion animals with their owner while self-quarantined and how you can protect your pet if you become ill with this or other communicable diseases. So if you would like more information, um, please see WSAVA.org. Dr. Klein, do you have anything to add before we close today? Um, yes, I just would like to add uh, for people to know that if they think they're at risk for having been exposed to the COVID-19 novel coronavirus, that if they're scheduling appointments with their healthcare facilities, that they call ahead and try to inform the hospital's intake personnel, their infection prevention staff, that they are coming, what their symptoms are, and so that the clinic or the hospital can prepare for them and uh, meet them when they come in, give them a face mask to wear, and uh, make sure that the healthcare workers taking care of them are aware of their travel history or exposure history. Again, to try to um, protect uh, not only other patients in the facilities, but the healthcare workers as well. Very good advice there, Dr. Klein. At this time, I'd like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Dr. Susan Klein, Dr. Julie Weishampayan, and Dr. Kritika Kapali. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 outbreak, head to IDSA's website at idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next week as we welcome another diverse panel of medical experts to discuss the latest developments on the outbreak.